You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Understand, return, risk, cost, and time. Don't try to time the markets. Keep costs low by owning index funds. And remember, very, very small differences make a difference. Investing in the market is about more than just money. It's about investing in your future and your choices. It's investing in you. If you're looking to optimize your investment strategy, visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today. Hey, everybody, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining us today on Her Money. So we are taping this episode in early October, and we have seen another volatile few weeks in the market. We are now solidly in a bear market. Stocks have been tumbling since August. The Dow and S&P recently hit their lowest closing levels since 2020 before rebounding just a bit. Inflation is still hovering way too close to the 40-year high that it hit in June, and the Fed has said that it will continue to raise interest rates into 2023. There's also a lot to worry about overseas. Not only are we all still watching the war in Ukraine, but we had the sabotaged pipeline, And the UK government has rolled out tax cuts that will likely add fuel to the fire of inflation. Needless to say, it is creating chaos in the markets on both sides of the pond. As we're reading about all of this and looking at our portfolios, it's very easy to get fixated on what's rising and falling by the day, even by the hour. A survey from Ally Financial found that one in five consumers have closed an investment account over the past year because of concerns about inflation and stock market volatility. And look, I get it. We are all seeing a lot of red right now, but pulling out of the market right now just means locking in your losses because history is on our side and history has shown us there will eventually be a rebound. We want to be there for that because as our next guest will tell us, we're not just looking to make a profit today or tomorrow, but 10, 20, 30, 40 years into the future. That's why it is so important for us to take a deep breath and then zoom out for a bit. While this economy feels unprecedented in so many ways, the stock market has already gone through so many swings in its lifetime. And the best way for us to understand this current downswing is to look back, look at the past. What are the historical trends in the markets that we should know about? How do they affect us now? How can we learn from the mistakes that investors before us have made? And what are the tried and true investing strategies that we need to hold on to now more than ever? Fortunately, we've got an investing veteran here with us today to explore all of these questions and many more. Bob Pisani is a senior markets correspondent for CNBC who has reported on Wall Street for 25 years. He's seen it all. He was on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange during the dot-com bubble, the stock market crash in 2008, the start of the pandemic, and everything in between. These days, he specializes in covering the global stock market, IPOs, and ETFs, and he's the author of a new book, Shut Up and Keep Talking, Lessons on Life and Investing from the Floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Bob, 
Welcome. I don't know how this is possible, but I don't think we've ever met. And it's exciting to have you here. Well, thank you. And uh, I have uh, been following you for years. And I think it's true. I mean, you were doing stuff with NBC for many years with AARP. And I'm a dues-paying AARP member. <laughs> I just got in. I just, this was the first year I'm eligible. <laughs> nonsense. That was nonsense, folks. But You, uh, you can keep telling yourself that. And, yeah, and Jean, exactly. Gene does very well at AARP. And uh, those of you uh, who are eligible and not members, I encourage you. To, to join. Uh, I was waving the AARP and yes, I read it. It's very good. Gene's a writer in there. And Now uh, they'll take you at 40 years old, by the way. And no, really? Yes, they will. And it's worth it for the discounts alone. I mean, the discounts yeah. are, are something else, but that's not what we're talking about here today. And I know we're catching you in between segments on the air. I'm grateful for that. You've covered the stock market for decades at this point. I would love to get your big picture view of where we are right now, because it feels a little roller coastery to me. Yeah, it is. Here's the way to look at it. Think very, very long term. We have had an extraordinary run since the great financial crisis. The S&P 500, which is the main gauge for the market for me and for everybody else, is up an average of 15% a year between 2010 and 2022. Is that a little, a lot? That's a lot. The long-term historic average for the S&P 500 return is about 10% a year, going back to the 1920s. Now, that includes a dividend, so bear that in mind. And dividends range from you know 1% to 3% typically, and that's not inflation adjusted. But think 10% gain a year. That's about as good as anything out there. It's better than bonds were historically. It's generally better than real estate. State, although there are periods where real estate have outperformed, we've had a 15% return. Now, what happened to account for that? That is statistically very significant. And I think one of the things that really mattered very much was the Federal Reserve. After the financial crisis, they pumped a lot of money into the system, new money into the system. There was also a lot of programs helping people. And particularly in 2020, when massive quantities, as you know, Gene, the Fed increased its balance sheet dramatically. So one of the hard things to figure out is how much factor does liquidity play in the market? Liquidity in a simple way is just how much money is around. Intuitively would make sense that when there's a lot more money around, some of this money is going to find itself into speculative investments and Stocks mm -hmm. are the classic speculative investment. So this is a slightly long-winded way of saying what accounted for this five percentage point outperformance per year for the last 12 years, I think a good part of this is the Federal Reserve adding liquidity to the system. Now, if you believe that, and most stock market observers would agree the Fed is a factor in why the stock markets outperform, then it would be reasonable to assume that the Fed withdrawing liquidity, which is what they have been doing, would account for some period of subpar returns going forward. And that's kind of what it seems like. Now, I'm not saying we're due for down years, it looks like this year, it's reasonable to make that assumption, Gene. Well, and I think it's reasonable to make the assumption that stocks will have down years every so often, right? I mean, if you look at bull markets versus bear markets, the good news is that bull markets typically last longer and stocks typically grow further. But 
we need to expect some downtime in the market. What I'm confused about, though, is your description of stocks as a speculative investment. When we talk to young people, when we talk to retirement savers, and we we talk about, you know, you need to have the bulk of your money in a diversified stock portfolio over time because that's going to get you the growth that you need to get there. That doesn't sound especially speculative to me. Well, it is speculative in the sense that I understand investing versus a risk-free environment. So if you want a risk-free environment, you're going to buy treasuries. And in fact, this is the benchmark that people use, even stock professional stock investors. What kind of return on stocks could I expect given what we might have with a risk-free investment? And that's called the equity risk premium. Because the market can go up and down, it's a speculative investment. If you want something that's not speculative and risk-free, you want to buy bonds at this point, government bonds particularly, and hold them to maturity. Because if I buy a 10-year right now at, say, 4%, and I hold it for 10 years, I'm going to get 4% a year, and I'm going to get $1,000 back at the end of 10 years. Unless you believe the U.S. government is going under, in which event you have bigger problems in your life than, than worrying about that. So- Stocks are a speculative investment against assets like real estate and bonds. You mentioned this at the top, Gene, about returns. Since the 1920s, the S&P 500 has been up 72% of the time year over year. That's three out of four years the S&P 500 goes up. How much? These are two statistics you should remember. 56% of the time, the S&P 500 goes up 10% or more. 12% of the time the S&P goes down 10% or more. So you see the trend here. This is going back 100 years. The trend is up long-term. That doesn't mean you can't have flat or down periods. And you can have periods like in the 1970s where you get several years, it's terrible. And you have periods like uh, we had right after 2000 and the dot-com bust where it was down several years in a row. But long-term, the trend is always up. And why is that, Gene? You know why. Because the capitalist system and the, the efficiency of the capitalist system generally encourages uh, e efficient use of capital. That's a simple explanation, but that's it. Do you believe, and for all of our listeners who are continuing, as I am, to put money into the markets every single month through my 401k, through stocks that we're buying through our investing fix program, do you believe this will continue? Uh, do I believe that the market will continue to be down? Or? No. Do you believe that this historical oh, yes. trend oh, of the market you know, being the best place to be long-term over time will continue? This is a core belief of mine. I believe that stocks are the best long-term investment, but not the only investment. We can talk about portfolio diversification if you want and where I think it should go. But I believe that stocks are the best long-term investment, and I believe the United States still is the best place to invest in the world. Why? Because of the nature of the U.S. capitalist system. Why does Russia a failed state? There is no rule of law. In the United States, you have contract law. This might not sound very interesting, but it's absolutely critical to the functioning of a modern capitalist system. If I have a contract with somebody, a performance contract, I can go to a court and enforce it. A lot of places in the world, actually, you can't. Now, Europe, you can too. But here, there is particularly robust enforcement of commercial law. And while well, corruption does exist, relatively corruption-free judicial system. That means that you can actually create a system and it actually have a means of enforcing it. And when you have the kind of capitalism we have, you can argue that our 
capitalist system is sort of ruthless, maybe, but it's very efficient. It's more efficient than almost anywhere else in the world. That's why our stock market outperforms. Now, maybe we should have a different system. Maybe some people don't like that system. They say it's too inhuman. I heard this all the time. I get this a lot. And that's a legitimate question. But that's why I overweight the United States and why I generally am still a big believer in capitalism. Remember, Winston Churchill once said about democracy, democracy is the worst political system ever invented, except for all the other ones. And it's true. Capitalism is the worst economic system ever invented, except for all the other ones. The title of the book is Shut Up and Keep Talking Lessons on Life and Investing from the Floor of the New York Stock Exchange. You've been on the New York Stock Exchange floor now for what? Going on, I mean, two and a half decades? 25 years, yeah. And people ask me, how did you, that's a strange title, Shut Up and Keep Talking. People are very interested in the mechanics of how television work. And I often get the question, what do the producers say to you when you're waiting to go on the air? You know, I have this thing, it's called an IFB. It's in my, this thing in my ear. It's called it. Yeah, I, I wear one too. It's an interruptible fallback. Hold on something. I'll show you this. And what's interesting is while you're waiting, they'll usually have a quick chat with you and say, you know, Bob, this is what's coming up. But typically what they'll usually say is two words. One is rap, which means shut up. The other is stretch, which means keep talking. And I was talking to the publisher about the title. He said, that's it. That's the title. Shut up and keep talking. I said, well, that's basically what you really hear. So it's been a wonderful 25 years. During those 25 years, the world has changed. And investing has changed. We've seen the birth of electronic trading. We've seen the growth of passive investing over active investing. We've seen the whole development of behavioral finance as a thing as something that we should pay attention to, that understanding this irrational behavior among investors. And so I'm wondering, what are your most important lessons that you think individual investors can take away from your experience? Well, I think in terms of investing, I'm a Jack Bogle disciple. Jack Bogle was the founder of Vanguard. And Jack's view of the market was very simple. And one of the reasons I loved him is I, I was able to absorb what he had to say very easily. So his whole point about investing was there's four components to this whole thing, return, risk, cost, and time. So the return is just how much do you expect to earn and reasonably expect? The risk is how much could you afford to lose without killing your pocketbook or your psyche? And the cost, and this was Bogle's big contribution, expenses you incur eat into your return and pay very close attention to them. And then the last part is the time. What's the length of your investment horizon? And one of the things he pointed out was most people don't understand they're going to live a lot longer than people think, than you really think. So if you start at 25, you're likely, and you're still alive today at 60, you're likely going to be around to 85 or 90. Think about that. That's 60 years of investing. So I think a lot of people ask me about, oh, I'm 60 years old. Should I have 60% in stocks and 40% in bonds? Or, you know, I'm a little concerned. And I say, look, if you're 60 years old and you're reasonably healthy, you should think about living to 90. You've got another 30 years of investing. Why on earth would you suddenly decide to dramatically drop your stock allocation? Trust me, I know it's probably a down year this year, but it's not going to matter in 20 years. It really isn't. What you should be worried about is the fact that you should not be trying to time the market and you're going to be living another 20 years. You should keep costs low by owning index funds or at least low cost actively managed 
funds. And this is Bogle's other thing he kept pounding away at. Very small differences in returns make a big difference when compounded over decades. Gene, I know you've talked about the magic of compounded interest, but Bogle in his book, Common Sense on Mutual Funds, showed the difference between a 1% difference in returns and a 2% difference in returns. It doesn't mean much in a year, but when you start looking at the differences over 10, 20, and 30 years, it's astronomical. If your long-term return that you have in your investments are 5%, over 30 years, you're going to have dramatically less money than if you got a 7% return, dramatically less money. And understanding the power of compounding is very, very important. So that's what I would say. Understand return, risk, cost, and time. Don't try to time the markets. Keep costs low by owning index funds. And remember, very, very small differences make a difference. We can talk about more philosophical issues, but on investing, that's the core of what I learned and what I got from Bogle. Bob, I definitely want to go down that line of thought, but just hold on for one second because I do want to point out that when it comes to investing, confidence is key. Confidence in your ability, your knowledge, and your strategy. If you're ready to do more with your investments, visit planefe.com slash hermoney. That's planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor. Review your current situation with an expert and get tailored investment strategies to help build, grow, protect, and preserve your wealth. You can get started. Again, plan EFE.com slash her money. Do more for your future right now and speak to an advisor today. We are back with Bob Pisani, CNBC correspondent, author of Shut Up and Keep Talking. So I grew up at Money Magazine and Smart Money Magazine, and these were magazines that were in the business of every month putting a story on the cover about the nine stocks to buy right now, or the nine funds to buy right now, or the nine funds for the next decade. I don't know. It wasn't always nine. Sometimes it was seven. Sometimes it was five. CNBC is the baby of that business, right? CNBC has blossomed in the same vein. It throws investment ideas out time after time after time after time every day, you know, a hundred different investment ideas a day. How do you parse all of this information and how do you suggest that we as individual investors who aren't pros, who want to retire, take it in? The question is, are you the kind of person that wants to actually sit there and try to trade stocks on a daily basis. Frankly, most people don't. Most people, in fact, and I believe this, are better off not trading and staying in low-cost index funds and not trying to time the markets. Why? Because you know this, Gene, the academic evidence is very clear. Market timing does not work. You have to decide when to go in and when to go out, and most people can't do that, and they're better off doing nothing. Jack used to say, don't just stand there, do nothing. (laughs) His argument was, you think you have to do something, and probably what you need to do is stick to your plan and do nothing. It's when you start deviating from the plan that you start making mistakes. Now, let me just talk about people who want to. Jack Bogle understood better than anyone that it is very difficult to just sit there, okay, I'm going to put the 14% of my money away in low-cost indexing fund, and then I'm going to leave for the rest of my life and never look at the stock market again. There are a very large group of people that want to, Jack called it, scratching the itch. 
They want to do something. They're motivated. They're young. They think they can outsmart the world. They think they can bet on the Eagles game and outperform that. They think they can bet on crypto and outperform on that. They're all full of testosterone and hormones, and they think they can do it. And Jack knew that, and we all know that. And Gene, if you're going to sit there and be an ideologue and cross your arms and say, no, nobody should be doing this at all. No, 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 no. You should just go into low cost. You're going to sound very ideological, and you're not going to have a lot of friends out there. So Jack helped set up actively managed funds at Vanguard right at the dawn of Vanguard. And some of them are still out there. Capital Opportunities mm -hmm. Fund, for example, is there. These are, Jack was at Wellington. Jack was never against active management. What he was against was high cost active management because he said, you few of you that actually outperform, most of you don't, but the few that you do, you lose because the fees you charge eat into the alpha, into the outperformance. So Jack's Big thing was, if we have active management, it's going to be low cost. And that's really what you need to go after. I still believe that most people are better off in index funds. But I'm not the kind of person that says, oh, no, everybody who tries to go out and do their own stuff is crazy. Jack used to say, OK, you guys think you're a bunch of geniuses? Go ahead. Take 90% of your money, put it into low cost funds, and take 10% and go ahead. Buy some fun. Do what you want to do. And that, I think, is a realistic acknowledgement of what human beings are really like. That's exactly how I feel. And that's why we started our Investing Fix program, which I'm doing with Karen Feinerman. I know you know, I know. her. And we are teaching women how to invest in an investing club style because we heard from our community we want to understand this. We want to be able to do it. We're not doing it with our retirement money, but we're going to scratch the itch. Right. So I love that example. So with that in mind, what stocks or sectors, I know you talk about this every day. I mean, where do you see the opportunities right now? The short answer to the question is, I am a Jack Bogle disciple. I own low cost index fund. My single biggest holding is an S&P 500 ETF. I also own small cap value index funds. I own mid cap index fund. I own a broad international fund. I could write it out on an index card for you. And whenever I tell people this, you know what happens, Gene? They look at me and they say, that's it? That's what you own? You're the senior <laughs> stocks correspondent for CNBC and you own this boring stuff? And show us the real stuff, like uh, the Illuminati stuff, the stuff that only the insiders like you would know. It's a leveraged inverse Malaysian bond funds or something like that. And I say, you know, actually, no. You ought to know, Jeannie, and I'm sure you know this. Some people may not. I'm restricted. I'm not allowed to own individual right. stocks and bonds. I'm allowed to own mutual funds and ETFs. But it wouldn't matter. Even if I did, other than maybe a couple of preferred funds, preferred individual stocks that I might pick, I wouldn't own them. It's too risky to own individual stocks. I love people who say, you know, Bob, I have a, I have a concentrated portfolio. I only own 11 stocks. And I say, good luck on that. That's very, very, and they're all growth stocks, Bob. Good luck on that. That's too risky. The whole idea is spread out risk and don't worry too much about trying to outperform the world. It doesn't work. And we can talk about this, why the future is unknowable, if you want. Why is everyone so bad at stock picking? Why is everybody so bad at just understanding the future at all? This big part of the book devoted to this. It's been a subject that bothers me for years. Don't you, you notice this, Gene, right? Everybody's terrible. Of course, everybody's terrible, but to some extent, I think it doesn't matter. 
if you're willing to stick with your investments through good times and bad times, then perhaps the future doesn't really matter. Thank you. That's an excellent way to put it. What you're saying here is you're sticking with the market, you believe in the market long term, and you're not worried about everybody else's predictions, including your own predictions. And that's a very, very smart way to look at things. Let me just comment on why the future is so unknowable. There's really two big problems. One is that predictions are riddled with biases that influence the way people look at things and influence the outcome. So for example, a classic bias is overconfidence in the belief that you think growth stocks are going to outperform. That's a classic problem. And there's cognitive and emotional biases that people have that prevent them from really understanding kind of what's going on and where we're going. There's also problems with individuals. Think about how unknowable the future is. We have lack of information. So try being this. You're an analyst. It's December. And you have to pick what you think the earnings are going to be in this company one year from now. You might think you know, but you don't. And the reason you don't is because for every company, there's millions of variables, each of which can affect the outcome. And some of them may be predictable, but most of them are not. So on a macro level, for example, the economy may have all sorts of problems. We may have inflation. We may have a war. We may have a cyber attack. The company may have a new competitor. It may get a new CEO. The, may, the CEO may fall ill and leave. And you're not even thinking about COVID, a total black swan event, or an invasion by Russia, a completely black swan event. Then think about humans, CEOs. Sometimes they get ill, sometimes their careers flounder. So it turns out that this is like the weather in a way. One of the reasons you can't predict the weather very well more than a few days out is the amount of variables multiply exponentially. There's literally trillions of variations. They're trying to do quantum computing now because they can't figure out how to do the weather very well. And the stock market is a lot like that. You've heard about these analogies like a butterfly flapping their wings in Africa. It changes the air patterns. Then you know, two weeks later, there's a hurricane in the Caribbean. That's what you're dealing with here. You're dealing with that level of complexity. So if you understand number one, that there are biases that affect the outcome and it is extremely complex environment that you're dealing with. You get a, very humble about predicting just what you said, Gene. You start realizing this is not a game that's easy to play. And even the Federal Reserve is terrible. You've seen this, Gene. The Federal Reserve's record of predicting even GDP growth out more than a few months is terrible, terrible. They can't even do it. Yeah, that's why they're in a pickle right now. Right. That's why the Federal Reserve governors are disagreeing on how long they should keep raising interest rates. I know you touched early on on the importance of investing in U.S. markets and how the U.S. needs to be the bulk of your portfolio. Should we be paying attention to the importance of global markets? Should we be investing globally? And do you think that that's an important component if you're looking towards your own retirement or are U.S. companies invested enough globally that you don't have to deal with it. Yeah, that's a good point. About 40% of the revenues of the S&P 500 occur outside the United States. And Jack Bogle always used to say this to me and anybody who would listen to him, go ahead and buy a, you know, an emerging market fund if you want, but US corporations have plenty of overseas exposure. That statement is true. With that said, again, what do you own, Bob? Uh, I have 10% of my portfolio in a broad international fund. 
in addition to the S&P 500. I do that because even though the U.S. market has outperformed for many years, we don't know if that trend will necessarily continue. This is a terrible year for Europe, obviously, so the fund's underperforming. But I still work under that idea. I'll tell you one thing that has changed in the last year or two. Our relationship to China and to the Soviet Union, but let me just talk about China. So if you are an international investor, one of the things that's happened in the last 10 years is investing by market capitalization. So not just company-wise, but by country-wise. So if China, for example, is, pick a number, 15% of global stock market capitalization, including Hong Kong, if it is, then you ought to own um, 15% of your portfolio should essentially be represented. Now, that's an extreme case, but you get what I'm saying. In the last couple of years, given the very difficult relationship we've had with China, a lot of people are asking, is that really the way to invest? Should we be completely blind to everything except something like market capitalization? What about looking at this in a different way? What about saying, you know, the values of China, at least where it's going under Xi Jinping, the current leadership, do not reflect the values of the United States. Well, that's true. It's an extreme case, but it's a legitimate question to ask. Maybe some of these countries should realistically be excluded. I'm not coming down on either side of it, but I'm saying that's a legitimate question. And by the way, don't go too crazy. I mean, France is not exactly like the United States either. I wouldn't have any problems investing in France. But uh, you, you see my point here. It, there, there's some interesting questions about is the only thing on earth either profits or you know market capitalization? Are there other issues that should be considered when investing? Well, and you're really talking a values question. Yes. So there's been an explosion in ESG investing over the past decade and some evidence that you can do well at the same time you're doing good. Are you a believer there? Yeah, I'll tell you, this is a very complicated question, ESG, environmental, social, and governance. On the surface, of course I'm a supporter. Who doesn't want a better environment? Who doesn't want better governance? And those of you who are mystified by what this all means, governance is simply largely diversity, board diversity. Right. I've been on Wall Street for 30 years. It's appalling how few women there still are on boards in, on Wall Street around. Now, let me say, it's gotten better. In the last five years, it's gotten notably better. But up until then, frankly, it's appalling. I don't know what the hell is going on, but Wall Street certainly has a problem, a diversity problem. And who on earth is opposed to more diversity in the boardroom? I want to meet the person who raises their hand and says, I don't want it. So I want it. And that's kind of what goes on here. Now, with that said, there's a real problem with this whole thing. A lot of this is very fuzzy. So you're talking about trying to metricize things. You can count a number of women on a board if you want, but it gets a lot more difficult with some other issues. Not Most of this is not so clear cut. So the, it boils down to the difference between quantitative and qualitative. A lot of things are qualitative where you're just making a judgment about where you think they are versus quantitative where you can count. ESG has a problem with that. It's getting better and they're trying to do it, but it's an issue. The other issue that you have here is mislabeling, calling a fund carbon neutral. Well, what does it mean that you're carbon neutral? How do you make that judgment? And Gary Gensler, the head of the SEC, and I, have a, I agree with him, has properly called out some people and said, uh, well, we don't know what you're doing here. We don't know if you say what you actually think you are or whether you're just trying to put this green face on to the world. 
I think that's a legitimate issue. The final thing that's happened, and you know this, Gene, in the last you know, year or so, is it's become politicized. People on the political right who are not in favor, frankly, of corporations, say, being sensitive to environmental issues are saying, uh, these people are pushing an environmental agenda on us and we don't need it. What we need to have is corporations concentrate on just profits. So what's happened here is there's two schools. There's the old Milton Friedman School. Milton Friedman used to say corporations should do nothing but make profits for their shareholders. That's it. Since then, there has been a new school called a stakeholder school that said, you know, frankly, no. Corporations have interactions with the community, their employees, the environment, and there should be broader considerations. And in a simple way, Gene, that's what's going on. I think that's an interesting discussion to have. What I don't like is when people start saying, you know, these people, you got to stop them from doing this because, you know, this is the road to communism. That's a little silly, I think. We can have the discussion without people making accusations. I completely agree with you. I also know that we have to get you to your next hit. So as we wrap this conversation up, I want to know, look out for me for our younger investors who are just getting their feet wet, who are really thinking about their futures. What's your best advice for the 20 or young 30-year-old who just wants to get it right? Yeah, this is not an investing question. It's more like a worldview question. The thing that I had, I'm 60, almost 67 years old, and uh, that's pretty old to still be in this business, let me tell you. But what I have done for myself is keep updating your knowledge. There's a chapter in the book I call Bob 2.0. I actually describe how I keep trying to transform (laughs) myself. Because if you think like, oh, I'm old, therefore I'm wise, you're going to get crushed. I love hanging out with young people. You know what I notice about them? If you give them some respect, they give you some respect. You get it back. And they're not interested in making fun of you or saying, you know, just some old fart. We don't care about you. They're really interested in learning because I know a lot and I can impart a lot of knowledge, but they have a lot of energy and they have a slightly different viewpoint looking at the world. So I like to surround myself with young people because number one, duh, they're the future. And number two, I can learn something from them. And yes, I like being a little bit of a a mentor. So keep updating your knowledge base. And that includes not just your personal mindset. Learn to be very, very open. There's a chapter in the book where I talk about successful forecasters. And there was a very famous book out called Super Forecasters by Philip Tetlock. I would highly recommend this book to everyone, where he talks about the difference between those who are successful and not. And the key thing here for him is what he calls foxes and hedgehogs. Hedgehogs are people who have one big ideological belief, and they kind of make the world fit to that ideology. Foxes are people who are very open in the way they think. If facts change, they change, and they're constantly evolving. And he said the best forecasters are people who are more fox-like than hedgehog-like. So try to keep being a fox. Be open. Number two, I would understand your biases. Start with the idea you're not going to eliminate all your biases. And I I list them in the book. There's a chapter where I list all the things that you see if you can recognize yourself. But be aware of them so you can control them. The third thing I would say is avoid groupthink. The most successful traders kind of have different ideas and different way of looking at things. And finally, just keep supporting innovation. 
new technology. Innovation creates new wealth. It improves efficiency. It helps manage risks. When I came to the floor of the New York Stock Exchange in 1997, there were 4,000 people on the floor, and they did 80% of the volume in the New York Stock Exchange. 4,000 people were standing on the floor when I got there. Today, there are 200 people that trade eh, 15 to 20%. Think about this, 4,000 people doing 80% of the volume in 1997, and today there's 200 doing 15 to 20%. You know what that is? That's technological disruption. That's the power of what we would call electronic trading interrupting the old open outcry system. And as much as I was loving being a part of the floor, and I loved being there, I'm nostalgic about it, I'm glad technology advanced, and we need to feel that way. We need more technology, more advancing, more progress, and finally, be optimistic. Do not succumb to this wave of negative thinking. The world is getting better. We're living longer. Your children are going to live longer than you do. And believe in it. Believe in the future. The book is Shut Up and Keep Talking, Lessons on Life and Investing from the Floor of the New York Stock Exchange. I just think it's fascinating stuff. You should all read it. Bob Pisani, thank you so much for doing this with me today. Jean, thank you. And thank you for all of your contributions, helping educate the world on a better future, not just a better financial future, but a better future in general. Thank you. And it's been great being with you on this journey all these years. Fantastic. Before we dive into our mailbag, we are so grateful that Her Money is supported by BCU. BCU is a credit union that measures its success by empowering members to achieve their financial goals. BCU wants your banking experience to be authentic, to be friendly, which is why its products let you bank in confidence and its caring service gives you peace of mind. See if you're eligible for what BCU has to offer at www.bcu.org. And Hermione's Catherine Tuggle joins me now for our mailbag. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. It's so nice to hear from people who look at the markets every day and who have been looking at the markets every day for decades, because I got to say, I've been pretty stressed out. You know, I've been stressed out too, but I've been talking a lot about the markets lately with Karen Feinerman. As I I think I mentioned earlier in the show, Her Money's launched this new program called Investing Fix. I'm running it with Karen Feinerman from CNBC's Fast Money. It's an ongoing investment club for women where we all work together to build a portfolio and talk through these moves that successful investors make. And we're talking through a lot of these very same issues in our meetings every other Monday night on Zoom. We get into ETFs versus index funds versus active funds versus passive funds versus individual stocks. And the thing about this experience, as I found, is a lot of our members don't have any investing experience, but they're in it with us because they want to walk the talk. They want to understand what's going on in their 401k, maybe as Bob quoted Jack Bogle as saying, they want to scratch the itch a little bit. If any of you find this thought interesting, we would love to have you. You can learn more or sign up at investingfix.com. And by the way, we spell fix with two X's. Yeah, totally, Jean. And I also thought it was really insightful just what he said about diversification. 
I think that people underestimate the number of stocks and the number of different of types of investments that they need. And that's what I love about investing fix is that you guys are picking stocks each week. So you guys are talking about constantly, how would one diversify one's portfolio? How would one learn to invest more in a different industry if you feel that one industry that you've been loyal to is really not doing so great. So it was nice to hear that from Bob as well. Yeah. Or if you just feel like you need to cover more of the bases. And I think that's an important point to keep in mind because the sectors that are doing well this year are not necessarily going to be the sectors that are doing well next year. And owning a wide swath of the S&P 500 is really what it's all about, if not just owning all of it, which as you know, I'm a big fan of. I think index funds have an awful lot going for them. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I know we've got some questions, so let's dig in. We do. Our first question today comes to us from Juliet. She writes, hello, I was just offered a job as a project manager. Their salary offer is $60,000 a year. However, they will be paying me through Coinbase on the blockchain network. They say pay is biweekly and have several employees. So I'm assuming that if this company was not legit, then those employees would have left by now, right? I've never invested in NFTs before and I have limited knowledge. I was wondering if you could offer me any advice on the risks of earning my income this way. For example, if I just wanted to immediately sell my Coinbase shares for US dollars when I receive my biweekly paycheck, would that be possible or advisable? Thank you so much for your help. So this is definitely happening more and more. And I know, for example, anecdotally of of some people who are working in the cryptocurrency industry whose pay comes to them as cryptocurrency. But there are things that you need to be careful of. And the first one is the one that you just mentioned. We talked with Bob Pisani about how incredibly volatile the stock market can be. It's nothing compared with cryptocurrency. And you have to realize that what you're comparing it to is not stocks, you're comparing it to the dollar. And even with inflation, $1 is gonna be worth the same thing in a few days, in a few weeks, in a few months. That's not true with crypto. If you get paid in a cryptocurrency and it has a bump up in price, well, that paycheck could be worth significantly more in just a few days or weeks. If that cryptocurrency falls, that paycheck could be worth substantially less. And the problem with that is that your rent is not changing. Your utilities are not changing. The price of your groceries or your car payment or your student loan payment, those things are not changing. And so If you don't sell it as soon as you receive it, the value of your paycheck can change without warning. So that's a big thing to think about. You could, I'm sure, set it up in such a way so that you sell it as soon as you get it and then you'll know the value of whatever it is you receive and you can hold on to that, but that's something to know about. The next thing to understand is that taxes will be different. So if you receive crypto instead of cash, you are going to have to keep track of all of those crypto transactions as far as your 
tax bill is concerned. Every time you sell some crypto, every time you get paid, you're going to have to report the value of that transaction. Every time you pull money out of your crypto wallet or your Coinbase account, you are going to have to keep track of that. It probably means that you are going to need help from a professional come tax time if you don't have help now, which is not to say that you shouldn't take the job. If this is a job that you want and a job that you are excited about, by all means, take it. But one thing I would absolutely do is talk to other people at this company about how they are handling their paychecks. Talk about how they are dealing with the value of their paycheck being so volatile. And from their experience, you'll, I'm sure, be able to figure out the twists and turns that might get in your way. Yeah, it's a complicated world. And I've heard of more and more of this. So that's great advice on how to navigate it. You know, there was a football player, Odell Beckham Jr., who made some headlines in November by announcing that he was going to convert his salary for 2021 into Bitcoin. And he was set to receive $750,000. It probably ended up costing him, we're not sure how much because it's not really known whether he transferred all the money into Bitcoin at once or spread it out over a number of conversions. But it is likely that just doing that cost him a decent amount of change. And could Odell Beckham Jr., who is a Super Bowl champion, afford it? Probably. But maybe it's not something that you want to deal with if you're making $60,000 a year. Yeah. That's a great point. This goes back to what we've talked about before with a lot of crypto investments being like mad money. You know, you don't want all your eggs in that basket. Exactly. Our next question comes to us from Lauren. She writes, hello, Jean. I listen to your podcast and I'm learning a lot. I'm not naturally money savvy, unfortunately, but I'm hoping to catch up at the age of 34. I just left my full-time job to start a storefront for the gluten-free bakery I've been doing on the side for six years. It's my passion, and I'm so excited, but also fairly nervous. I was at my company for 12 years, and I just got a note about the $172,000 in my company's savings plan and asked if I wanted to leave the money alone, roll it over to an IRA, or take it as cash. I don't want to take it out, as it's the only retirement my husband and I have right now. He lost his job some years ago and only started working again full-time four months before I quit. I don't have an IRA or anything for retirement set up yet as a business owner, and I'm not sure what the next big step is for me to put that money somewhere it will grow and hopefully add to it when I'm able. Additionally, we have about $15,000 in credit card debt and $50,000 in debt funded by a family member, as well as $80,000 in mortgage debt. I'm not sure if this is enough information for you to give advice or not, but as you can tell, we've made some choices that have put us in a tight spot, and I'm really working hard to make this bakery a success and hoping to be saving money again quickly. Thank you for any advice you can give. Thanks so much for writing, Lauren, and for listening to the podcast. We're happy to have you. And congratulations on the start of the bakery after six years of experience with this under your belt. I'm sure you've got a ton of evidence that there's a market for this and you've made this choice with a lot of 
forethought, which is really, really important for anybody out there who's got a side hustle that they're thinking about quitting in order to do full time. You really do need to know that it could support you as a business. Otherwise, you can love it as much as you want, but it's really not a business. It's a hobby that makes you some money. So this is good. Six years is definitely enough runway. As for the $172,000, that's really great. That's terrific. As you know, one of my benchmarks is that you should have about one times your annual income put away for retirement by the time you're 30, three times by the time you're 40. You're there, right? And my guess is that you are right in the middle of that range, which is good. And I'm happy to hear you say that you don't want to take the money out because you should not take the money out because if you do take the money out, it will no longer be $172,000. It'll be $172,000 minus a 10% penalty. So that's a $17,000 haircut minus taxes, which is a bigger haircut. My guess is you'd be left with like $120,000, maybe $130,000 at most. So the other two choices are either to leave the money in your current plan, which is fine. If you like the options in your current plan, the investment options, and you're not being charged high fees on that plan, leaving it might be the easiest thing to do, might be the best thing to do. You're already familiar with the system or you can roll it into an IRA with any financial institution. They'll all open a rollover IRA account for you. They will walk you through it. You just have to pick up the phone and explain you've got this money, you wanna do a rollover, and then you're gonna wanna invest it in a mix of mostly stocks and some fixed income or bonds as a much smaller percentage because of your age. So maybe 70% in stocks and 30% in bonds or 75% in stocks and 25% in bonds or fixed income. And really that's all you need to do. Again, you'll add money to a different account. You won't add it to that rollover IRA, but instead probably to either a Roth IRA, a traditional IRA, or a SEP IRA, which is an account that is set up for the purpose of allowing people who work for themselves to contribute more than you can kick into a basic IRA for retirement. The other thing that I really think is important for you and your husband to do together right now is some really hard budgeting. Part of Finance Fix is what we call getting dirty with your data. As part of the Finance Fix program, which is basically centered on budgeting to help you save more, spend less, pay down debt, we put students through a process of really taking a hard look at their data, tracking their spending, getting in there with it, and asking the hard questions of what we can cut in order to do things like paying off that $15,000 in credit card debt, building an emergency cushion so that you don't have to incur any more credit card debt. You didn't tell me anything about your savings overall, but I'm assuming that because you didn't mention them, there isn't very much there. I wouldn't worry about the $80,000 in mortgage debt, especially if you've owned that house now for a year or more, you've probably got a mortgage at a great rate, just pay that off over time. And the 50,000 in debt from the family member, 
I assume you've got some sort of arrangement with that member about when and how much you have to pay them back and and you're going to want to set yourself up to adhere to that too. But particularly with your husband in a fairly new job and with you having a volatile income stream, as does everyone who starts a business, or at least pretty much everyone, you're going to want to pay very close attention to those numbers, really get dirty with that data, and try to make sure that you are making the most of every dollar. I hope it goes really well. We've got a lot of gluten-free folks in my family. We always need delicious gluten-free things to try. So lots of luck with that, Lauren. Yeah. It's such a special thing to pursue your dream like that. Oh, yes, absolutely. And I admire the fact that she took six years, right? She tested for six years. Many people test for six months. Six years is a real test. So the fact that you were able to really get in there makes me much more certain that this business has legs. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Jean. Thanks, Catherine. And in today's Thrive, some free things to do on your next layover. If you're like me and you often find yourself with long layovers or you just like getting to the airport ridiculously early for your flight, hint, I do not, then you are probably spending a couple of hours at your gate wondering how to pass the time. There are actually a ton of things you can do at the airport, and I'm not just talking about scrolling on your phone or buying overpriced food. At Her Money, we took a look at the airports around the world and found the best free opportunities you can take advantage of on your next trip. One of those is the opportunity to get some exercise, and I don't just mean running to the terminal to make your connection. A lot of airports offer free workout facilities. The San Francisco International Airport is just one of many that have yoga rooms with complimentary mats. The Baltimore-Washington Airport, also known as BWI, has two designated walking tracks. And the Helsinki Airport offers a 24-hour exercise room open to kids and adults. If you're in the mood for something a little more laid back, many airports also give you the access to free books, movies, music, and art exhibits. Amsterdam Schiphol Airport features a library, a grand piano you can play, along with a 24-hour art gallery. Portland International has a 22-seat mini theater that shows free short films. And if you happen to have a layover in Nashville, Seattle, or Austin, chances are you can catch some live music right in your terminal. If you're looking to get away from the crowds, many airports offer meditation rooms or interfaith chapels. Services are often free, but you can also choose to make a small donation. And some airports, like LAX, have therapy dogs available for cuddles. I love that. You can even pet miniature therapy horses at the Cincinnati Northern Kentucky International Airport. I'm doing that for sure the next time that I'm there. Every airport offers a little something different. So the next time you're prepping for a trip, do a quick Google search to see what's on offer where you've landed. Thank you so much for joining me on Her Money. Thanks so much to Bob Pisani for calming our nerves 
a little bit and giving us a long-term view of the markets. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll talk soon.